Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have James Hale. James is normally a senior anaesthetic registrar in southeast Scotland, but he's currently on secondment to the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service, Scotstar, and their West team based in Glasgow. He holds the Fellowship in Immediate Medical Care and lots of other anaesthetic exams. And he's here to chat to us today about permissive hypotension. James, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Thank you, Dave, for having me. That's great. Permissive hypotension is one of those topics that gets knocked around a lot, but I guess it's probably worth just pinning down what we really mean by permissive hypotension. Yeah, definitely. And it's something which I think means different things to different people and is mentioned in a lot of guidelines in a lot of different ways. But yeah, I think to discuss the topic, the, the best place to start is to come up with a, a definition. And in my mind, what permissive hypertension means is basically when you have a patient in hypovolemic shock secondary to trauma and, and kind of ongoing bleeding, it's not attempting to fully correct that shock with fluids. So it's allowing the patient to remain in a shocked state and not attempting to correct it. And that is the definition I'm going to use for talking about it today. So you mentioned their ongoing bleeding. Presumably here we're talking about bleeding that we can't easily control externally, so sort of intrathoracic, intra-abdominal bleeding. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really key point with permissive hypertension. So this is definitely a strategy only to be used for patients where they have bleeding that we can't stop there and then. So we're not talking about a patient who, you know, maybe partially amputated, amputated an arm or a tourniquet can stop the bleeding. We're talking about patients with kind of intra-abdominal, intra-thoracic, pelvic bleeding that isn't generally pre-hospitally. We don't have anything we can do about that. So this is a strategy to get them to definitive care. And that strategy is to not fully correct the, the physiology and allow the kind of shocked state, because that may convey some benefits, which I guess we can go on to talk about. Yeah, I mean, in some senses, from first principles, it sounds a bit daft not to return the patient to normal physiology. So what's the logic behind it? Definitely, because, you know, we know in medicine that shock is bad, you know, hypotension, low flow, leading to acidosis, multi-organ failure. We know that's a bad pathological process. It ends to the death of a lot of different patients. So it's definitely not something to be taken lightly when we're saying we're not going to try and correct a patient in shock. So why might we choose not to do it? So specifically in these patients, they're bleeding and we can't control the bleeding. So one of the ideas is that by allowing the blood pressure to drop, we're going to reduce bleeding from all the vessels that have been damaged. And that's simply because of the hydrostatic pressure kind of pushing the blood out of the vessels is reduced. So that's one idea that will reduce the amount of bleeding. And that might allow a clot to form and stabilise. So it might actually stop the bleeding. Whereas if we try and elevate the blood pressure by giving fluids, we might not allow that clot to form and we might just lead to increased bleeding. I think a second thing to mention, this is also critical, is talking about coagulopathy. So obviously with trauma, you get a coagulopathy and a lot of that coagulopathy is is, um, associated with the traumatic injury itself. You know, talk about acute coagulopathy of trauma. 
but you also can get dilutional coagulopathies due to the therapy we give. So if we give these patients a lot of crystalloid, we may dilute their clotting factors and that might lead to a dilutional coagulopathy. And also associated with the crystalloid administration, we know that you can get, you know, complications such as ARDS, acute compartment syndrome of, of the abdomen, and it can also lead to lots of other dysfunction, you know, sort of myocardial dysfunction and so forth. So, so there's some of the benefits, perhaps, uh, of allowing the patient to remain in this shock state. So reducing the amount of bleeding, reducing the, the amount of coagulopathy, and then reducing the complications associated with crystalloid administration. And then the risk, as we talk about, is obviously hypoperfusion, shock, acidosis, and eventually, you know, multi-organ failure and death. This is presumably a strategy that short-term temporizing measure, this isn't the, the be-all and end-all of, of treatment for these patients. Yeah, definitely. So, so I think, you know, I think that's a good place to jump off. We're saying shock is a bad thing. So if we're going to allow it, we need to allow it for a very short period of time. And the aim here with these patients is to get them somewhere where the bleeding can be stopped. So that is normally to an emergency department where they can either go to theatre or potential interventional radiology if it's sort of a major trauma centre. And, you know, that can stop the bleeding and then we can correct the shock and, you know, prevent that sort of shock cycle we were talking about. As you say, it's an idea, a concept that's been banded around for a little while. It's made its way into various guidelines. So I, I wonder if you can just kind of touch on how this fits into the current guidelines. There's a few different guidelines out there which mention it, and they all mention it in slightly different ways, have slightly different ways of going about it, and definitely have different endpoints. And, and I think that just represents that actually the literature backing this up, although there is some literature which suggests it's positive there's nothing kind of conclusive as to what we should be targeting so i guess a good place to start for most pre-hospital providers you know in the ambulance service is jr calc and they stratify these patients into whether you have penetrating injury to the trunk and then whether you have penetrating injury to another part of the body or blunt trauma so they group the penetrating injury to non-trunk and blunt trauma together so jail calc says if you've got penetrating injury to the trunk, you should treat patients. You should give them fluid if they have a systolic less than 60 millimetres of mercury with signs of impaired major organ perfusion. So it doesn't actually define what it means by impaired major organ perfusion. But I think most people would take that to mean as, you know, impaired consciousness, you know, respiratory failure, those sort of things. So just to clarify, that's for penetrating thoracic trauma. So it says to the trunk, so that would normally include abdomen as okay. well. So we're talking about penetrating thoracic abdominal trauma and the target systolic for intervention would be below 60 millimeters of mercury the way it says is it so if they have a systolic less than 60 and they have signs of impaired major organ perfusion so we're talking about things there such as being confused sleepy would be the main ones i think you'd recognize then it suggests you should treat with crystalloid and for blunt or for non-thoracoabdominal trauma so there the target is 90 millimetres of mercury with impaired major organ perfusion. So, so it's, it's a higher target for blunt trauma. So you would intervene much earlier in blunt trauma and penetrating kind of head and limb injury. Both of those are reasonably low. And actually, they're both caveated that you have to have some evidence of end organ dysfunction yeah. alongside yeah. Your, your hard numbers. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's interesting you say both of them are quite low because certainly if you look at some of the other guidelines, for instance, the NICE guidelines, the targets in JR Calc, I think, would be thought of as quite high, actually. So I guess now would be a good time to move on to the, the NICE guidelines, just to mention them. So the NICE guidelines for pre-hospital suggest that we should be using a central pulse, so a carotid or femoral pulse. And effectively, that means that if you can't feel a central pulse, you give fluid. If you can, you don't give fluid. 
the caveat often people talk about with that is, well, if you can't feel a central pulse, are they not in cardiac arrest? And that is a good point. But I think to be in cardiac arrest, you also need to have no respiration or agonal respiration, and you need to have no signs of life. So that would be the differentiator. So you've got a patient with no pulse, but they are still breathing, or they have some signs of life. That's when you treat. Obviously, if they don't have any signs of life, no respiration and no pulse, they're in cardiac arrest, and you should treat as such. Again, that, that's sort of significantly lower than has historically been the case. So how did we get there? Yeah, so that's a good point to... So this idea has been around for a long time of permissive hypertension. It was kind of first described in the First World War by some of the American physicians who joined later in the war, particularly a chap called Walter Cannon, a physician and a mainly physiologist. And he kind of recognised that giving fluid to patients isn't necessarily a good thing, especially if there's not a surgeon there ready to stop the bleeding at the same time. In terms of the mainstream medical literature, I think the first paper really, if, if you're interested in this to know about, is a paper from the Mattox Group, which was published in 1994. They're based in Houston, and they did a randomized control trial of immediate versus delayed fluid therapy. I guess very quickly, just to talk a little bit, that this has at various times been termed different things. So sometimes you hear immediate or delayed fluid therapy. So that's whether you give patients fluid immediately or you wait a little bit before you give it. Sometimes it's called a restrictive therapy. So either you're giving lots of fluid or you're not giving much. And sometimes it's called a permissive hypertension. So the literature does use mixed terminology and they are subtly different, but effectively it kind of means the same thing. It's, you know, are we giving lots of fluid to these patients to try and correct their physiology or are we not? In this Mattox paper, they basically randomised patients to receive fluid pre-hospitally and in the ED or to receive no fluid up until they arrived in the operating room. And these were patients with penetrating trauma who had hypovolemic shock, so a systolic of less than 90. And there was quite a significant difference in the amount of fluid given to these two groups of patients. So in total, there were about 600 patients, 300 in each arm. The immediate group got about 2.5 litres prior to the operating theatre. And the delayed got about 350 mils because some people were given fluid accidentally, but still a large difference. And in this paper, they showed a significant reduction in mortality associated with the delayed fluid group. So 62% mortality versus 70%. And they also showed a reduced hospital length of stay. This paper was very much the first paper which challenged the dogma of, of giving lots of crystalloid to these patients in shock in order to try and correct the physiology. There were also a number of secondary benefits it shows. So it's a really nice little paper. So they very much showed that these patients who aren't given fluids, they have a higher hemoglobin when they arrive in hospital. They have lower PTs and APTTs, which for those who aren't used to talking about them, that means their blood is more clotty. So they have, don't have a coagulopathy. They also have similar pHs. So pH is a good measure of uh, kind of shock. So even though we're not giving fluid to these patients, their pHs are similar. So it was a really great little paper demonstrating that these patients might benefit from a restrictive fluid therapy. So I guess that sets the stage. It didn't really make the current sets of guidelines for quite a few years after that. I think it, perhaps in some areas of the world it did, but it didn't really hit the mainstream for a while, not really in the UK as far as I'm aware until the mid-2000s. And there have been a few RCTs that have gone on since then. So, so you know, the, there's an RCT from the group in Baltimore. There's some RCTs from other North American authors. And, and none of them have shown the same kind of benefits as 
tactics group did in that paper. So it does have an interesting point. So a few other interesting points about that paper is it was all penetrating trauma and they're all young males mainly. So the mean age was 31. So perhaps that was why it wasn't so widely utilised in perhaps blunt trauma, which is the mainstay of what we see in the UK and Europe. You know, might be one argument, for instance. I think there's another interesting point to, to pull out of that paper, which is that so in these two groups of patients, when they arrived in the ED, they were both still shocked. So in the immediate therapy group, the mean systolic of the patients was 79, and in the delayed, it was 72. So there, there is a difference there, although, although small, a significant difference. However, when these patients arrived in theatre, the mean blood pressure in the immediate therapy group was 112. And in the delayed, it was 113. Um, and you've got to remember, so these are patients who haven't been given fluid yet from arrival in the ED to arrival in the operating theatre, which was only on average 50 minutes later. Their blood pressure has gone up to 113, which I think points to a really interesting aspect of these patients. When the patients have acute bleeding, they become shocked, but then the blood pressure drops. And I think the assumption with these patients is that they are getting some form of hemostasis. And then through the body's natural compensatory kind of mechanisms, their blood pressure is then rising by itself without fluid therapy. And I think that's a really important point to note in this paper, which is that permissive hypertension might be a good way of stopping bleeding and then allowing the body to have its own recovery mechanisms. You know, it seems to be a significant process. It does sort of tally in effect with what you see sometimes at the roadside when you have a patient who it drops their pressure that allows the, the slowing of flow to a point at which they can then form thrombus and maintain it possibly with the sort of other adjuncts like tranexamic acid and then and that allows the body to sort of equilibrate and i guess when you're looking at young i would imagine fairly fit individuals they then have the cardiovascular reserve to be able to to head back towards a normal tension yeah, definitely. And, and there will be fluid coming out of their third spaces and, and you know, tissue fluid re-entering the circulation. So they do have the ability to compensate as long as the bleeding isn't so severe that it continues effectively. So I think that's a really nice point that was demonstrated by this paper, which also backs up this argument for permissive hypertension. I think another thing which is interesting to mention is some of the, the animal work that's been done on this topic. So there's been a lot of research in, in a number of different animal models. And anyone is interested, there's a great review by uh, Mapstone in 2003, which is a systemic review of a lot of papers, I think around 50 different papers, looking at lots of different models of bleeding in pigs, in rats, in sheep. And he looked at various different fluid strategies. So the majority were either giving no fluid to patients or giving some fluid. And then there were also quite a few of either a low BP target or a high BP target. And he summarized the findings of these papers really well. And effectively, to borrow his summary, but effectively, I think it seems quite well demonstrated by the animal models that if you have a lower blood pressure, you bleed less. These animals bleed less. The other thing which he demonstrated, though, is that if you have a really severe injury, so for instance, if you have a tear in your aorta, that no resuscitation fluid in these patients is bad. So actually, if you do have really severe bleeding and really severe shock, not resuscitating them is bad. However, for more moderate injuries, for instance, they stratified these models by how much of the rat's tail they cut off. So if you cut off more than 50, the rats do bad with no fluid, whereas if you cut off less than 50, the rats do bad with fluids. So with more moderate injuries, lower volumes are more beneficial than higher volumes. 
when he also compared the sort of normotensive versus hypotensive strategies, the low BP group had a much better survival with a kind of odds ratio of 0.37, which was significant. So quite a benefit in the animal models to a hypotensive strategy. So the animal studies definitely back up the paper by Bickle and the ideas, the sort of theory behind permissive hypertension. To draw that together, the argument is that there are times when there is fluid, there is benefit from fluid, but it may be associated with either injury severity, which is quite hard to predict at the roadside in humans, or with blood pressure, hence the targets that were set by NICE and by JR Calc. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the guidelines are trying to get at. They're trying to say there are definitely some patients who need fluid therapy. There are some patients who probably benefit from not getting fluid therapy. Where do we put the threshold where we change our management? And that is the bit which I think is a bit more in the air. I guess to summarise, I think what I take from the literature is that I think that the evidence seems to be out there that kind of if you give these patients fluids, crystalloid mostly, they are going to have a lower haemoglobin, more coagulopathy and more bleeding, which the animal models demonstrate. And there's also the point that a lot of these patients, even though they're hypertensive initially, their blood pressure improves even without fluid. But as you said, there is a group of patients who are going to die or going to cardiac arrest unless we intervene and give them some fluid. I think the Bickle paper provides pretty good evidence that in young patients with penetrating trauma to the trunk at a kind of delayed therapy group is beneficial. But in other groups of patients, so patients with blunt trauma or you know elderly patients, I think perhaps less evidence that there may be a benefit there. And I think from a specific pre-hospital point of view, the other bits I really think about is things like scene time and transport methods. So there's been some good few papers as well looking at the association with IV lines and IV fluid and scene time and, and demonstrating an increased an increased scene time associated with putting IVs in and giving fluid. And considering these patients, what we need to do is to get them to hospital to have their bleeding stopped. You know, I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. It's surprising how much extra faffage trying to get a line into somebody who's shocked can pose. I guess in some senses, the advent of, of widely available interosseous routes may have improved that. But it's still yeah. time and faff when you could be treating with diesel. Yeah, definitely. I know that giving fluids intraosseously is hard. Certainly, if you have a patient who is shocked enough that they're going to need fluid resuscitation, I think it's really difficult to do that effectively with an IO. And you're definitely right that IVs are difficult to get in these patients. And in some ways, you do hear some people talking about in these patients who are bleeding, get the IV in quick because you might not be able to get it later, which I think also might be a good point in some patients. So <laughs> it's like a lot of things in pre-hospital medicine, like there's arguments for and against multiple ways of doing things. But I definitely think it's worth bearing in mind that trying to get an IV and to give someone fluids might not be the best thing, just getting them to hospital might be the best thing. Really interesting seeing how that all fits together. I guess from a practical point of view, how do we turn this into something that we can do at the roadside, something tangible in terms of our practice? I guess that's why I was really interested in this and I've I've done some reading regarding it is because I really want to know what I should do when I see patients pre-hospitally who are shocked. And to me, for permissive hypertension, that means I need to understand when I need to intervene and when I need to give fluids. And then I guess another thing to think about is how long am I going to do this for? And in some ways, I think this idea of, you know, what our target is and how long we're going to do it for, they're both inherently linked in my mind. Because actually, if I'm only 10 minutes away from hospital, I'm probably going to be comfortable tolerating a a higher degree of shock 
than if I'm two hours away from hospital. So in some ways, both the target is linked to the time away from hospital. So that's a good point to start with. And once again, I think it's also important stressing here that the important aspect is stopping the bleeding. So getting them to an intervention which can stop the bleeding, that is probably more important than worrying overly about a specific target, whether we're giving a 200 mil or a 500 mil bolus, actually expediting the transport to definitive care. As we talked about in the guidelines earlier, some guidelines state systolic pressures, some state a pulse location, such as a carotid or femoral pulse. Some guidelines, such as the European guidelines for trauma, suggest a MAP target. And then other guidelines also talk about organ perfusion. So, you know, talking things about consciousness and cerebration. So, you know, what do we use? There are obviously negatives to each of the different measures. So, you know, talking about blood pressures, everyone knows that when the blood pressure is low and a patient shocks, the non-invasive just can be pretty useless and can just cycle over and over again and give very erratic readings both above and below what the patient's blood pressure actually is. So, you know, that's certainly not something which is easy to obtain or reliable in these patients. Pulse location. So, you know, most trained medical practitioners can find all the pulses pretty quickly and pretty reliably. I think an interesting thing to think about with this, though, is, is actually how reliably do different pulses disappear at different blood pressures? So the classic HLS teaching is that you lose your radial between 80 and 90, you lose your femoral between 70 and 80, and you lose your carotid between 60 and 70, I think. But actually, how true is that? And there are a few papers out there. So there's, there's some stuff by Deakins around the turn of the century looking at patients in hospital but with hypovolemic shock secondary to trauma. And there's a few good papers out there which I think demonstrate nicely that the pulses aren't lost at the same places in the same people and they can actually be felt at very low blood pressures. So for instance, they showed that 50% of people's radials will be palpable above 70 millimetres of mercury and all of them are palpable above 80. Whereas when you look at the carotid, around 50% of them are palpable at blood pressures as low as 42 to 45 millimetres of mercury. So actually, there is a variation in when patients' pulses disappear, and they might be very low. So for instance, if we were following the NICE guidelines of resuscitating to a central pulse, we might have patients whose systolic pressures were in the 40s with that strategy. And then talking about organ perfusion and using that as a target. I think the mainstay of that is using cerebration and consciousness, but that can obviously be affected by patients who have a traumatic brain injury, patients who have drugs on board, such as alcohol, or patients for the more advanced practitioners who have been anaesthetized pre-hospitally, you know, where that becomes a measure we can't use so reliably. So there are definitely negatives to all of the different targets you can use. I guess going back to this Bickle paper and the Mattox group, I think this is a good jumping off point to start thinking about targets. So in their non-intervention group, so their delayed therapy group, their mean BP on arrival in the emergency department was 70 millimetres of mercury. So I always think that's a good jumping off point because we know these patients did better than the patients who were given fluid and the patients who were given fluid and had a higher blood pressure. So almost, in my mind, that seems like a good place to start. So, so using the 70 millimetres of mercury. The interesting thing with them, so they had a very, very quick scene and transport time and response time. So the average time for these patients to get from the 999 call or 911 in America, I guess, into the emergency department was only 27 minutes. And their scene times were generally sort of eight to nine minutes. So really quick, really quick. Yeah, much quicker than in Scotland. We wouldn't um, even answer the phone call by that stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like 
even though these guys had a very low blood pressure, it was for a very short period of time. And although the, the strategy was maintained in ED, they spent about 52 minutes in ED. But as we mentioned, the blood pressure when they got to theatre in this non-intervention group was 113. So it has almost spontaneously risen during that period. But so, so that almost seemed is a good place for me to start, if you know what I mean. It's a blood pressure as low as 70 for 30 minutes is acceptable and does lead to a better outcome. But I must admit, further than that, I think the honest answer to the question of what we should target is we don't really know. And I think that's why different guidelines give very different recommendations, whether that's a central pulse, a systolic of 90. And the European guidelines talk about a MAP target rather than a systolic. So yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) Just sort of drawing from what basics currently teaches, we look at two factors we've actually removed blood pressure monitors out of the responders kits so although a lot of responders will carry them because they are gps or practice nurses or, or paramedics i can't teach anything is based around radial pulse plus evidence of end organ dysfunction which as you say is it's largely confusion which can be quite difficult to assess in the complex polytrauma patient and i think to be honest that is my personal approach as well is that I don't use one source of information and I don't have a very specific target in my head of when I will or when I won't intervene. You know, I look at uh, if I have a blood pressure cuff on what it's telling me. I look at how thready do the pulses feel. If I have a conscious patient, I talk to them. I gather whether they're sleepy, orientated, whether they're alert. And, and I kind of take it all into account. And then I also think about, well, you know, how far away from hospital am I? How long is it going to take to get there? And then also another aspect is how am I going to get there? So for instance, if I've got to carry this guy off a mountain and he's going to be 20 degrees head up for a long period of time, I probably need to resuscitate him more than if I'm going to be able to keep him flat on a five minute drive to the hospital. And I use all of these points to come up with an idea of whether I am or I'm not going to give this patient fluids. But it's very hard to give a very specific target. I think a radial is good. Um, Certainly, I mentioned that bit about when pulses disappear. About 50% of people's will disappear around 70 to 71 millimetres of mercury. And that seems to be the blood pressure in the Bickle paper. So that ties up quite nicely. But there's certainly no hard evidence that that strategy is better than any other. I do just want to dig into your thought process around time of transfer. Because again, a lot Mm. of our responders are working particularly rurally within Scotland or out on the islands. And and certainly even for me in Pitlochry, which is hardly the back end of nowhere, regularly transfer times are upwards of an hour to hospital, Mm -hmm. plus generally at least an hour from the point of injury to the point at which I'm in a position to make that decision about fluids. So how does the process change around the time from injury to what my fluid resuscitation strategy is going to be? That's a really good point. And I, and I think the honest answer in terms of the literature is that I don't think there's anything out there in the literature which replicates the Scottish situation in terms of the timelines to get to patients and the timelines of getting into hospital. So we're very much talking about opinion here rather than anything else. But I would definitely just fall back on the strategy we've already talked about. So you're using multiple different measures. And, and I guess going back to the underlying idea of the risks and the benefit. You know, what we really want to try and figure out is the shock this patient is in getting to the point where I can't not correct it. And, you know, when I come to assess shock, the things I always do first is feel the hands, how warm they are. I go up the arm, feel if there's a kind of a cold, warm line. I feel the pulses. I look at the pallor of the skin. I get an idea of the patient's conscious level. And, you know, that's generally what I do. I get an idea of actually how sick this patient is. And I rely a lot upon gut feeling for that. And then in terms of the other side, so the benefits, I guess you've got to think about, well, do I think this patient's bleeding? Where do I think they're bleeding? 
what fluids do I have? How far am I going to take them? And I think certainly in Scotland, if in these patients you can get one of the red teams out, one of the, the helicopters out, that that might be a benefit in these patients. But I know a lot of the time that that's not possible because of weather and because of location and so forth. But that's certainly what I'd be thinking about in these patients. And I guess the unspoken aspect of that is that you guys have access to blood. And blood yes. does change the game slightly in that we're not just filling them with cold, salty water that's acidotic and coagulopathic. A hundred percent. I think I would tolerate a lower BP if I only had crystalloid available. And that's not reflected in any of the guidelines. Interestingly, there is lots of RCTs out there showing that blood is better than crystalloid. Interestingly, there is one RTC looking at sort of a permissive hypertension versus normal tension. And inadvertently, they've kind of demonstrated that blood is better because basically in the LMAP group, they eliminated crystalloid and in the HMAP group, they allowed as much crystalloid as you wanted. But then they didn't control how much blood these patients could get. So the LMAP patients got loads of blood and the HMAP patients got nothing. And in the end, the LMAP group did much better, even though they received roughly the same amount of volume of fluid. Obviously, the LMAP group had a much higher percentage of blood products. And they did better, unsurprisingly. So that, that was a paper from 2011. So I certainly, working for EMRS, I would be reaching for the blood sooner than I'd be reaching for the crystalloid if I didn't have it available. So I guess the other thorny problem to touch on is what we do with isolated head injury patients, because it feels like it's probably a slightly different set of physiology that's governing outcome here. What are your thoughts around patients who have just got a sole injury to the head? I think in these patients, the strategy is very much the opposite to the strategy we've been talking about now. So patients with traumatic brain injury, obviously they normally are bleeding, but into the head. And I guess the important thing to note with this is you can't bleed enough in your head to die from hypovolemic shock. I don't think you can really even bleed enough to make yourself shocked due to hypovolemia. But there's pretty good evidence in these patients that hypotension is associated with significantly increased morbidity and mortality. And from a physiological point of view, that does make sense because if we're talking about blood supply to the head, we talk about cerebral perfusion pressure, which is the patient's blood pressure minus the intracranial pressure. It's basically the pressure driving blood into the head. And if that drops, the blood supply to the head drops, the oxygen supply to the head drops, and the brain is very sensitive to low oxygen supply and damages very quickly and very easily. So in these patients with an isolated head injury, we very much are not using a permissive hypertension strategy. In fact, we are doing the opposite thing. We are trying to achieve normotension. So the guideline I use, being an anaesthetist, is the Association of Anaesthetists guideline, which suggests targeting a blood pressure of 110 systolic and a MAP of 80. And we certainly want to be aiming for good radial pulses in these patients to those who can't measure a blood pressure. That's nice and clear. And you say there's, there's quite a few studies around outcomes and, and blood pressure with, with isolated head injuries. Just to make things really complex... What about the classic polytrauma, say the motorcyclist who's come off, who's got a bit of a smashed head, but is also pretty mashed up, some femoral fractures, some pelvic injuries. So there's ongoing, uncontrolled bleeding. How can we approach this? These are a really difficult group of patients. And we've already discussed the evidence for patients without a head injury and, and the evidence for patients with combined head and bleeding is very little. And most of the RCTs looking at permissive hypertension specifically excludes TBI or TBI was a very small percentage of the patients in the study. So the evidence here is very, very sparse. So in terms of the guidelines, they sort of hedge their bets on these. So there's a nice guideline say basically decide what is most prominent. So if the head injury is most prominent, use a less restrictive approach. If the 
shock and the hemorrhage is the more prominent condition, use a restrictive approach. So they very much suggest you just got to call it as to what you think's worse. Interestingly, the, the JL Calc doesn't really mention it in terms of their fluid therapy and trauma. But most of these patients are going to come under the blunt group, so you're going to be using a systolic of 90 as your recommendation. And the European guidelines, actually, they suggest that in any patients with severe TBI, you should be using a MAP of 80. So they actually suggest that in all patients with severe TBI, you should be trying to achieve the MAP of 80. In terms of the literature, so as I mentioned, there's not really much out there to guide. There are a few, though, which I think perhaps can point to to some reasonings why certain strategies might be useful. So that there is one specific animal model. It was quite a large study in rats published by Talmor in 99. And they basically had a model of combined TBI and hemorrhage in the rats. And they did a number of different things to these rats to try and resuscitate them, including giving them large volumes of crystalloids, small volumes of crystalloids, no crystalloids, vasopressors. And they also looked at the physiology of that. So they measured things like the cardiac output, the ICP, the cerebral oxygen. And they kind of demonstrated that, yes, giving fluid to these patients with hemorrhage does increase their cardiac output, but it also can increase their ICP. And I guess we're thinking about fluid leaking into the brain and edema. So actually, even though you might be increasing the blood pressure, you might not be increasing perfusion to the brain. And actually, they demonstrated that in patients given a lot of crystalloids, so in rats given a lot of crystalloid, the cerebral oxygen was sort of lower. So that might point to that in a group of patients who have TBI and really severe bleeding, giving a lot of crystalloid, even though we're trying to achieve a neuroprotective kind of state, it might not. The caveat, obviously, with this is this is a rat model. It's not a human model. It's not an RCT. It's very much a sort of observational model of trauma but it perhaps does point to if a patient is hemorrhaging badly actually the permissive hypertension strategy might still be a useful strategy because pouring in crystalloid to try and increase the blood pressure might have more of a detrimental effect than the benefit we're trying to achieve with it and I think the other paper to mention was actually one recently this year so I think there's a really good paper from 2018 called the PAMPA trial, which basically looked at aeromedical retrieval in the US and giving FFP to patients. There was a kind of a secondary analysis of that paper published this year, looking specifically at TBI patients. And they demonstrated that basically with patients with TBI, if you administer FFP, patients with TBI and shock, if you administer FFP rather than crystalloid, pre-hospitally, they do better. And they had a hazard ratio of 0.55, so a lot better. Which I think also is pointing to the, again to this effect. Coagulopathy is also important in these patients. And if all you have available is crystalloid, pouring in crystalloid to these patients may be more detrimental than the benefit you're trying to achieve. Having once again said so that this is a secondary analysis of an RCT, it wasn't the intended endpoint. It's definitely just giving a pointer towards the underlying physiological process. It's certainly not definitive. But I think these papers perhaps do support the idea that giving large amounts of crystalloid to these patients isn't going to be beneficial and we should probably concentrate on stopping the bleeding and then raising their blood pressure to protect their head. I guess it does also tie into some of the, the new work that's coming in around the endotheliopathy of trauma and, and leaky vessels and and that kind of inflammatory response to trauma that, that causes edema to occur at varying sites and so perhaps unlike the isolated head injury where we know that we we're just dealing with a simple cerebral perfusion pressure issue yeah with these patients we're probably not achieving cerebral perfusion pressure we're, we're just getting an inflammatory leaky brain instead 
I think certainly the coagulopathy is going to be scaled to the amount of trauma and patients who, who have polytrauma and you know trauma all over the body are, are going to develop a larger coagulopathy than patients with isolated TBI for certain. So I think nothing conclusive here, but I do think what little evidence there is does support the NICE guidelines for sure. James, that's been a really good rundown of what we mean by permissive hypertension and how we've got to the guidelines that we've got. And yeah, I guess a look at what that means to us in practice. Mm-hmm. We've been asking all of our presenters to give three top tips for basic responders because in the heat of the moment, it's quite difficult to review a whole podcast. So what would your suggestions yeah. be in terms of takeaway points for our responders? Yeah, so I've been having a think about these as we've been talking and trying to come up with what I think. I'm going to be quite vague with these things and maybe perhaps try to empower people that rather than to follow a specific number to actually just think about what's going on in my patients. So actually, I think my first point is like, try not to think about a specific number in these patients. So, you know, think about lots of things. Examine your patients. How warm are they? What is their pulse like? What's the character of it like? Can you feel a radial pulse or can you only feel a central pulse? You know, what is the non-invasive pressure reading and you know have a talk to them and see what their conscious is and bring all that together when deciding do we need to treat these patients or not don't just go on a systolic of 90 would be my tip number one and then the tip number two is generally so obviously we've decided we're going to utilize a permissive hypertension strategy but think a little bit about how far you have to go and the extrication plan and the transport medium because if you've got a long way to go and a difficult extrication, you might need to resuscitate the patient more than if a very short time to hospital. And you might tolerate a lower BP um, if you've got a very short time to hospital versus a longer extrication. And then my third point is definitely, I think, having read around this topic, I think it just demonstrates once again that giving large amounts of crystalloid to patients is generally a bad idea. So I would think very carefully about giving large amounts of crystalloid to these patients. I think you know, in all honesty, giving a small amount of crystalloid to these patients has not been demonstrated to be detrimental. But large amounts of crystalloid, I would think, and there might be some patients who might need that. If that's all you have available and you're not near a hospital, that might be the only option available to you. But I would just think about it before I went ahead. Gone are the days of ATLS where everyone got two litres of IV crystalloid stats before you yes. even <laughs> thought about doing anything else. Yeah, definitely. James, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for adding such clarity to what is a pretty thorny topic. (laughs) I hope I did add some clarity rather than just saying uh, we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And what we'll do is we'll put the papers that you mentioned up with the show notes so folks can do a bit of reading for themselves and hopefully spark some debate. Yeah, certainly. Thank you very much for having me on today as well. It was really nice talking about it. It certainly made it clearer in my mind. (laughs) Oh, glad we could help. And thanks again. Cheers. Bye bye. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.